Thank you for joining ReachMD XM157 for this month's special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. Even with published parameters for the determination of brain death, there is still great variation in practice across the United States. What are the implications of these discrepancies? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and our guest today is Dr. David Greer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Greer directed a national survey of neurology and neurosurgical programs to analyze policies for making brain death declarations. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thanks very much. Today we are discussing the guidelines for brain death declarations. Dr. Greer, when we talk about discrepancies or inconsistencies in making these declarations, why is that significant? Were some people declared brain death when they were not? That would be the ultimate concern in that someone might potentially declare someone brain dead that might have a reversible condition or might have some brain function that would not qualify as brain death. So that would be our ultimate concern. We hope that that does not happen, but that would make the case to having much more explicit guidelines so that people don't have problems with different pitfalls. You were discussing the findings of your survey. Can you summarize those findings? Our study found that the different hospitals across the country had widely disparate interpretations of what types of things should be in the guidelines. These variations included who could perform the testing, what kind of things need to be present before you could do clinical testing, what were the aspects of the clinical exam, what were the aspects of the apnea test, and what kind of ancillary testing could be performed, and what were the specifics of those tests. And we found that some things were quite consistent across hospitals, whereas others were quite disparate. What were the consistent things? In looking at certain categories, such as what things need to be specified before the patient could be tested for brain death, things like making sure that the patient wasn't hypothermic. So 89% of the guidelines had that in there. Uh, There was a wide variation of temperatures that were specified, but at least saying that the patient could not be hypothermic was specified fairly commonly. Having sedatives absent was 81% of those hospitals polled. Electrolyte disorders absent was 72%. Shock was absent in 71%. But then it trails off into things like acid-base disorders. Only 45% specified that they be absent. Endocrine disorders, only 42%. When you look at things like the, the examination in particular, there were some things that were very commonly stipulated, like patient being in coma, 100%. The pupillary reflex being absent, 100%. The corneal reflex, the oculovestibular reflex, the gag reflex. These things were all in the 80s to 90%. But making sure that the patient didn't have a response to pain in the cranium, that was only 42%. Having a jaw jerk be absent, that was only 18%. And get this, only 27% specified that the patient had to not be breathing. That's kind of amazing to us that only 27% didn't specify that there be no respiration that's present. So that was a big concern. My question again goes back to, ultimately, what difference did it make as long as the patient was brain dead? Are we dealing with a mistake that this patient really should not have been declared? That's the potential. So if a patient was having respirations during the coma test, they're not brain dead. Okay, they should not be having any spontaneous respirations. If you didn't test for that, then you wouldn't know. If you didn't note that, you couldn't be sure. If you didn't test for pain in the cranium, such as pushing on the supraorbital ridge or the TMJ, 
to see if they had any response to that. Well, you can't know that they would have had a response or not. So that's unclear. Now, when you personally declare a patient with brain death, do you go through this entire algorithm and, and answering these specific questions? Absolutely. Every single time. I'm very meticulous about this because you don't want there to be any errors. So a lot of the work is done for you. You have all the laboratory tests there. You have the vital signs of the patient. And you've already done a neurological exam to see what their function is when you evaluate the patient. But if you're finding that you're having no function, then you think, well, hey, this patient may actually be brain dead. So you go through the motions very carefully to make sure that they don't have any brain function whatsoever. Some things that we would do on the brain death exam that we wouldn't necessarily routinely do on every coma exam would be things like the cold calorics test or the oculovestibular test. That's not something that's necessarily routinely done, but if you actually need to make sure that there is no brain function whatsoever, we would then do that test. For all practical purposes, can physicians other than neurologists really follow these guidelines the way that you've described them? I think absolutely so. This is not rocket science. It's not impossible to teach people how to do even some of the more complex tests like the apnea test or the ocular vestibular test or testing things like doll's eyes. I think the harder thing is to get people to be cognizant of what the potential pitfalls are in the examination, such as have they checked to make sure that there was no drug intoxication. I remember doing a consultation in the SICU in our hospital where they had given a patient morphine overnight for discomfort to the patient who was naive to morphine and had some liver dysfunction, and we were unsure whether that could still be on board when doing the examination. So things like that are very important to watch out for. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, assistant professor of neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We are discussing the guidelines for brain death declarations. Dr. Greer, the three cardinal findings in brain death are coma or unresponsiveness, absence of brainstem reflexes, and apnea, correct? That's correct. Do we then have to dissect each of those to determine specifically what you were referring to before? Well, no. Coma is uh, very simple. It's just simply a, a state in which the patient can't be aroused either by internal or external stimuli. So that's not very difficult to do. In terms of the brainstem reflexes, there's you know only seven or eight things really that need to be tested carefully, and that's not that hard to do either. And then the apnea test, I think that's the place where people can really potentially run into pitfalls, and that's something that really requires some level of training. But again, anybody can learn how to do this with enough training. Certainly intensivists who are used to working with intubated patients can certainly do this as well. Please expand upon that apnea test. So the apnea test uh, is a test in which you observe the patient with the absence of mechanical ventilation for 8 to 10 minutes to see if they have any spontaneous respirations. And if they don't, you check a blood gas after that time, and you should see a rise in the PCO2 to at least 60 or at at least 20 above the baseline value if the patient was a CO2 retainer. But you're looking for a rise in the PCO2 that does not trigger the brain to take respirations. So that's the important clue, is that it's not hypoxia that occurs. It's actually the hypercarbia and the acidosis that occurs that stimulates the brainstem to trigger a breath. Now, you did say 8 to 10 minutes, yes? That's correct. Do you think that physicians might be somewhat reticent to take someone off the ventilator for that period of time? 
Well, the, the way that you do this and you don't uh, potentially cause the patient harm is by pre-oxygenating the patient. So you have to provide adequate pre-oxygenation so that they don't become hypoxic during the test. That's the only thing that would really lead to instability would be if they became hypoxic, and that's the only time that patients or physicians run into trouble is when they haven't adequately pre-oxygenated the patient. So we'll typically put them on 100% FiO2 for at least five minutes prior to the test. At no time should the patient become hypoxic. If they are unstable prior to the test, requiring multiple pressors, for example, or if they have marginal oxygenation, we don't do the apnea test. That's when you would forego it and go on to an ancillary test to try and make the determination of brain death. So in other words, you're really not looking at the oxygenation by the pulse oximetry, but really looking at the acidosis and the hypercapnia. That's correct. You don't want the patient ever to become hypoxic. If they start becoming hypoxic during the test, you abort the test immediately. Again, the hypoxia is not what stimulates the respiratory drive. It's the hypercarbia uh, and the acidosis. It's surprising to me as a surgeon, and perhaps it would be surprising to some of our listeners, that a patient could actually go for more than five minutes in complete apnea and not affect their oxygen saturation. Again, if you're starting out with a, you know, a PO2 of 250 or 300, uh, it's not going to dip down that quickly, so that you certainly can do it. And in, in a patient that has an inconclusive test after 8 to 10 minutes but has remained stable, we'll actually repeat the test and go for longer. This is a well-validated technique that is quite safe, again, when you do pre-oxygenation. Now, are these guidelines that you just described standard guidelines as published? Absolutely. These are part of the guidelines that are present in the American Academy of Neurology practice parameters, and they're also on other various documents such as books on brain death or review articles on on brain death that tell exactly how to do these types of tests. What we're looking to do, actually, is to rewrite the AAN practice parameters and make them much more explicit and even have a web-based form by which the, the clinician can actually go through this test at the bedside, do a checklist, if you will, and know how to perform things very easily. If you have a patient who cannot oxygenate to a point that you can do the apnea test, in other words, if they have a significant lung disease or, or other problems, how then do you do this test? We don't do the test in that circumstance. If there's ever a time when you're concerned that the patient would become unstable during an apnea test, then you forego it and you go to an ancillary test such as an angiogram, a nuclear medicine study, an EEG, something like that, another study that would determine brain death, but you would forego the apnea test in that circumstance. Are these three cardinal findings that we spoke about, are they equally as important in of themselves? Well, absolutely. You can't have two of them present and the third one kind of be a weak indication. No, they they all must be present. They're all equally important. Would you say that the apnea one is the most difficult to do? I think so, absolutely. It's the one that's fraught with the potentially the most complications of the procedure and the most difficulty unless there's somebody with a little bit of expertise or training that knows how to manage this situation. It's not a technically difficult procedure to do, but it does require that people go through certain steps to make sure that it's done safely and correctly. Do the physicians have to be taught as well as the nursing staff to really make these decisions? Absolutely. I think a physician must be present during this test. Again, it's part of the legal determination of death and thus a physician must be present, and I would advocate that it be an attending physician. If a patient fulfills these three cardinal findings, do you have to do any further ancillary tests to determine brain death? Nope. The brain death determination is a a clinical diagnosis. In other words, if the clinical exam and the apnea test are consistent with brain death, then you're done. You don't need to go on and get an ancillary test. 
That's in most hospitals. In some hospitals in the country, they may require that an ancillary test be performed. And certainly in the pediatric population, many feel that an ancillary test should be performed depending on the patient's age. But technically, a brain death determination is a clinical diagnosis. And if you satisfy the clinical exam findings and the apnea test correctly, then you're done. You've done a clinical determination of brain death. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Greer. We have been discussing the guidelines for brain death declarations. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at www.reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email at xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, features a special series, Spotlight on Neurology and Psychiatry. 